Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Gordon. She is a professor in the Department of Biology at Stanford University. She studies how ant colonies work without central control using networks of simple interactions and how these networks evolve in relation to changing environments. And today we're going to talk a little bit about that. So Dr. Gordon, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Thank you. It's great to be here. So before we get into ants specifically, and I know that there are thousands of ant species out there, so we'll probably just focus on a few of them. So, but first of all, uh, sort of a general question. So how do you approach the study of decision-making from an ecological perspective? Well, I think about collective behavior. So an ant colony works without anyone in charge. There's a queen, but she just lays the eggs. She doesn't tell anybody what to do. And it works through simple interactions among the ants, mostly chemical, mostly by smell. And what I try to understand is how those interactions add up to the functions of the colony in relation to the changing surroundings that the colony is working with. Mm -hmm. And in social insects, or at least some of the social insects, there's something uh, that's called distributed problem solving. So what is that and how does it work? I mean, why is it distributed? Well, distributed processes are very common in nature, not just in ant colonies. Mm -hmm. So a distributed process is a process that operates through local interactions among the participants without any overall assessment of what needs to be done or any global control. And uh, we use distributed processes in computer programs. Uh, we see distributed processes throughout um, nature. For example, you could say that the cells in a tissue work through distributed processes because nobody tells the liver to do its job. Instead, the uh, cells in the liver through local interactions accomplish tasks. Mm -hmm. So there are um, all kinds of distributed processes at work all around us. And uh, in the particular case of ants, what role does genetic play in their behavior and particularly in their sociality? I mean, is it that to some extent their behaviors are genetically encoded or not so much? I think that we get ourselves into trouble by trying to divide up what we see in a living beings as part genetic and part environmental mm -hmm. because the genetic process requires interaction with the environment to work. And of course, uh, part of the way that we respond to our environment is through those genetic processes. So I resist all attempts to separate the genetic and the environmental into um, particular bins. So I don't think that we can really answer that question. Uh, and for example, related to that, there are contexts where there's what you call context 
dependent expression of genes, correct? Yes, that's true for all genes everywhere in every organism. So mm -hmm. um, genes are um, part of the um, template for creating proteins, but mm -hmm. not all genes are working all the time. And instead, there are a lot, many layers of processes that trigger the um, expression of genes, that is, that, that lead to certain proteins being expressed at a certain time. So genes don't just chug away all the time. They turn on and off, and when they turn on and off depends on what's happening around them. Mm -hmm. And for example, when ants use chemical signals, that's something you referred to earlier, uh, does it have any effect on genes? Does it modify, for example, their gene expression in any way? Well, we know that gene expression changes in ants with time of day, so according to daily rhythms. And we know that gene expression changes when an ant changes task. So ants, like honeybees, um, as the individual worker grows older, it changes from one task to another. And we know that its gene expression changes when it makes those transitions. But there's a, a loop that we find very difficult to get out of. We don't know how much the changing situation leads to changes in gene expression and how much changes in gene expression are related to the uh, worker changing its behavior. So we don't really know which is the cause of which. Mm -hmm. Right. And talking about tasks, where does division of labor stem from? I mean, uh, how is it that ants acquire a particular role in their society? Again, I think division of labor is really not the right phrase for what ants are doing. And so I prefer to think about task allocation, which okay. is this distributed process where um, the colony adjusts which ants are doing which task and also whether they're actively doing it right now. So division of labor comes from an ideas about uh, dividing up work in a factory where uh, one person puts the handle on the door of the car and the other one puts the hinges on the door of the car and the other one you know, works on the steering wheel and so on and everybody has a fixed job and they do that over and over forever. While in natural systems and, for example, in an ant colony, the ants are all maybe doing some task today, right now. But if the needs of the colony change, ants could be pulled from one task to another task. They can switch tasks. And so what's really interesting is to think about how the colony can organize that without anybody in charge, without any central control, so how very simple rules could get more ants to a certain task when they're needed. And so what are some of the factors that play a role in how ants are distributed throughout the different tasks in particular colonies? Well, one species that I've studied a lot is um, the harvester ant in mm -hmm. the desert in um, the southwest U.S. Mm -hmm. and. I did some experiments where I created a need for more ants in some task. And I had um, the ants of different tasks marked by putting a, 
little spot of colored paint on their heads. Yeah. And so I, for example, I put out extra food, then the ants that were doing a different task would switch to become foragers and go out and collect the food. And if I created a disturbance, um, ants from inside the nest would become patrollers, which are the ones that respond to disturbance. And I saw that there was this flow of ants from one task to another. So when more ants were needed, they would be pulled out of one task and into another. But at least in this species, it's a one-way flow. So the ants, um, the younger ants inside the nest who are working um, on um, taking care of the brood and um, storing the seeds and maintaining the structure of the nest and taking out the garbage, those ants will move out to become foragers outside the nest. But once they become a forager, they won't go back. Mm -hmm. So we see uh, similar kinds of things in cells in a, in a mammal. So there are stem cells that can become other functions, but some functions are irreversible and some functions can go on to change again. So we see this same process of task allocation. For example, when an embryo develops and certain cells become uh, take on certain functions and some of them are irreversible, they, they stay there and some of them can, they can change further. So it's the same kind of process in an ant colony uh, where individuals in a certain task can move to another. Uh, we know a lot about that in honeybees because honeybees are a domestic animal that have been bred by people for 10,000 years to do certain tasks outside the nest. So we want them to go out and pollinate the plants um, for our crops. And so uh, they have been selected for to move very quickly from working inside the nest to going outside um, to do the jobs we want them to do. So we have um, actually been able to um, use selection to make them likely to switch to foraging very readily and very soon, because that's what we want them to do. And ants, no one has ever um, you know, used ants for agriculture or anything. And so um, they do their own agriculture, but not for us. And uh, we have a huge variety in the 15,000 species of ants in how they manage task allocation and how um, what it is that triggers ants to change tasks. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I mean, for example, what is the role that age plays there when it comes to task allocation? Does it play a role or not? Yes, as ants or bees get older, they're more likely to move outside the nest and work outside mm -hmm. the nest. So um, in ants, um, the ants, like um, all insects, are first an egg and then a larva, looks like a little tiny caterpillar, and then a pupa, which looks something like a cocoon. And then it comes out as a worker, as an adult, and it doesn't grow anymore after that. And so the ants that have just come out of being pupae, that's called eclosing, the ants that have just eclosed, are right there near the other brood because they were brood until recently themselves. And the youngest ants tend to stay around the brood where they just emerged and take care of the brood. And as they get older, they're more likely to be uh, 
bumped out further away from the brood and towards the outside. So it seems generally that younger ants are inside and older ants are outside. Mm -hmm. And do ants uh, recognize nest mates? And if so, how do they do it? That works, again, we think through a distributed process. So ants are coated with a layer of grease, a kind of waxy grease that keeps them from drying out. Mm -hmm. They're called cuticular hydrocarbons. And they use those to recognize each other, um, both within and across colonies. So ants of a given colony don't have all exactly the same um, hydrocarbons, but uh, they are more alike than the ants of a neighboring colony. And we think that it works um, by analogy with the immune system, that an ant um, starts out with with a boundary between what it recognizes as its own colony and what it recognizes as a, a different colony. And uh, this is work that I did with Fernando Esponda, who is a, a computer scientist. Um, and we um, imagine that the, the ant's boundary for what it recognizes as nestmate and what it recognizes as not a nestmate, but another colony shifts over time. So when it's young, it accepts everybody it meets. And that's um, works well because it's inside the nest and everybody it meets is a nestmate. And as it gets older and it starts to work outside the nest, it's more likely to meet workers from another colony and to shift its boundary and say, okay, you don't smell right. I think you're uh, not a nestmate. <clears throat> Maybe it has some bad experience with an ant from another nest who recognizes it as a stranger and acts in a hostile way. So that the ants over time are all um, shifting their decisions about who's a nestmate and who isn't. And we see in experiments that the ants that have been outside the nest more are more likely to recognize ants of another colony as strangers. Mm -hmm. And I say that's uh, an analogy with the immune system because our immune system works the same way, that we have cells that accept everybody they meet as um, part of our own body until they meet a pathogen and then the cell, the immune cells change to um, recognize that pathogen so that we have acquired immune response through our interactions over time. So it's a distributed system in the sense that at any moment, who recognizes the others as a stranger um, depends on the interactions that they've had. And there's no um, central control that says, okay, now everybody in this colony thinks everybody in that colony is a stranger. Mm -hmm. But uh, the ants that are part of a particular colony, I mean, are colonies fixed? in terms of the ants that are part of them, or can there be movements of ants from one colony to the other? And if so, how does that happen? No, um, ants within a colony um, don't move to another colony. Okay. Honeybees do that, but ants don't do that. The ants that we know about. So again, I should say there's maybe um, more than 15,000 species of ants. Yeah. And maybe 50 of them have been studied in detail. 
So although we say this is true of ants and we generalize, mm -hmm. really um, there are so many species of ants that we don't know anything about. But as far as we know, um, ants will accept ants of a, another colony only when they're brood, when they are larvae. So you can take larvae of one colony and put them in another, and they will um, grow up in that colony and be recognized. And the ants um, secrete these hydrocarbons themselves, but they also spread them on each other by grooming. So it seems that if you if larvae of one colony end up in another, they will be um, uh, covered with the odor of their new colony and they will be accepted and there's no problem. But once they are workers, they can't go into another colony because they smell wrong. Mm -hmm. But does it have uh, something to do with genetic relatedness or not? Um, well, we, um, you know, I think originally everybody thought that, but we have results, you know, that don't really um, conform to that because we find that even within a colony, the um, cuticular hydrocarbon profile changes over time. So I think originally people imagined that each ant was born with a sort of a passport that says, this is my colony and it just remains fixed. But it, that doesn't seem to work that way. So we don't really know um, how different uh, the neighboring colonies or the, the, the different colonies have to be for the ants to say, um, I, don't, uh, I don't accept you as part of my colony. You know, I also asked you that question because sometimes people uh, use the example of some eusocial insects, like some species of ants, to uh, they give them as examples of, uh, for example, mechanisms like kin selection or group selection, and uh, sometimes they talk about the fact that they are genetically related to then invoke, in this case, kin selection. But I'm not sure if that's something that is well accepted or not. Yes, well, the idea of kin selection came from um, the example of the social insects. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was Bill Hamilton's idea Mm -hmm. um, really in the early 60s, um, yeah. William D. Hamilton. And um, he noticed that there's something very peculiar about the genetic system of the hymenoptera. That's the ants, the bees, and the wasps. And that is that the females have two chromosomes and the males have only one. And that means that um, uh, uh, an unfertilized egg um, uh, will grow up to be a male. So all the females are diploid. So when you work out the numbers, it turns out that if a queen mates only once and she has workers as offspring, they will be more related to each other than they would be to their own daughters because they share the genes of their mother if, they have, if there's only one father. Um, so we could talk more about that, but it, it does work out that way. Um, and so um, Hamilton's idea was, if how is it possible that the workers who don't reproduce, how could not reproducing evolve? 
I mean, maybe I should step back and say that the way that an ant colony works is that there is one reproductive female, the queen, or there may be more, but they, they lay all the eggs. They mate and they lay the eggs and they produce these sterile female daughters who we call the workers. And Hamilton's question was, how could not reproducing ever evolve? So if you were to imagine there's a gene for not reproducing, then how would it ever get spread? Right. And um, the answer was that, his answer was that if the queen mates only once, the workers are actually more related to their sisters than they would be to their own daughters. So if this gene sort of appeared out of nowhere, then it could spread by the system. So it's a beautiful idea, but it turns out that in um, all the ants that we've studied and also in honeybees, that the queen mates many times. So the arithmetic doesn't work out. Um, it's not really true that the that the workers are more related to each other than they would be to their own daughters because there are many different fathers in a colony. So um, that was though the origin of the idea about kin selection that maybe when we try to understand how um, certain traits are spread through future generations that we could um, imagine that there would be behavior that would um, promote the um, offspring of relatives over the offspring of um, non-relatives, of, of individuals who are not related. Uh, but actually, um, I don't think that we need to worry about that in an ant colony because we can think of the co whole colony as the reproductive individual. So the queen um, makes new reproductives that go out and mate with those of other colonies and they start new colonies. She can't do that without the help of the workers. So really the queen and the workers are all working together to make more offspring colonies. So if we just zoom out a layer and imagine the queen, the colony as the reproducing um, individual, then we don't really need to worry about this question. Um, it's like a tree um, uh, creates uh, flowers that get pollinated and it makes seeds and it makes new trees. So you don't need to ask, you know, why does the trunk of the tree help the leaves? Because the, the trunk of the tree and the leaves are working together to make more trees. And in the same way, the workers and the queen of an ant colony are working together to make more colonies. So it's not really group selection either. Um, group selection acts on a group of independently reproducing individuals. So group selection in an ant colony in ant colonies would be groups of colonies because really the colonies are the reproducing individuals. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes, it makes sense. It's just that, I mean, I asked you that question also because, of course, there's this big debate in evolutionary biology of uh, level uh, regarding levels of selection and yes. sometimes people get uh, the debates get very heated if yes. uh, selection occurs on an individual level on a group yeah. level uh, i mean and the role that kin selection might play or not in particular animal species and so on so uh, and many times people bring the eu social insects to the table in those debates yes. right well, then they're talking about the um, ants as independent individuals and asking about the reproductive success of the ants. 
I don't think that makes a lot of sense because ants do not reproduce by themselves. They reproduce as part of colonies. So I think um, imagining the ants as, as um, independent individuals and asking why should they work together when they could just be, you know, each of them by themselves doesn't make any more sense than asking, you know, why does your finger agree to participate to be part of your hand? Well, it just is part of your hand and your finger wouldn't work if it wasn't attached to your hand, just as an ant wouldn't be able to function if it weren't part of a colony. So we see that colonies reproduce and make more colonies. And so I don't think that we need to worry about uh, the hypothetical situation where each ant would somehow prefer to be on its own, um, making its own profits, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, so another question now, do ants have personalities? And what does personality really mean in the context of evolutionary biology and in the particular case of ants? Well, personality is a, is a recent name for something that we've been talking about in evolutionary biology for a long time as variation among individuals. So we know that we have variation among individuals in size and shape and so on. And um, personality is a way of talking about variation among individuals in behavior. But of course, we know that individuals vary in behavior. So um, I think a person, the work on personality has focused on a certain kind of variation among individuals in behavior, which would be um, usually something along a gradient of um, what's called bold or shy or more um, pushy or aggressive or something like that. Um, but that's one of the many ways that individuals do vary in behavior. And we see that in every kind of, um, I mean, we see that in every animal. We see even in plants, you know, the trees of a given species are not alike, but we don't call that personality. We call that variation. Anyway, um, I don't know about variation among ants in personality, but certainly we see variation among colonies in behavior. And uh, that variation um, seems to be in how they use interactions to regulate their behavior. So um, to step back, uh, we know that ants use the rate of interactions to decide what to do. So in harvester ants, for example, the interactions are antennal contacts. When one ant touches the antennae of, touches another with its antennae, it, they smell with their antennae. So when one ant touches another with its antennae, it's smelling the other ant. And what they're smelling are these cuticular hydrocarbons on the other ant's body. And the ant is using the rate at which it smells or contacts other ants to decide what to do. So we know about this from experiments where we can coat little glass beads with these hydrocarbons and introduce them at a certain rate and the ants respond as if they were meeting other ants. So the differences among colonies in how they react to disturbance, uh, what you could call personality or variation among colonies, those differences seem to be slight differences in how individual ants react to interactions. So, for example, the ones that are more likely to um, respond to interactions, it takes fewer interactions to get them to do something. 
will seem to have behavior that is um, just more likely to be active in certain ways uh, relative to um, colonies that are maybe a little more hesitant. Or um, some interesting work um, that uh, Noah Pinter Woolman did um, when she was in my lab um, shows that colonies um, react differently according to the nest that they're in. So she um, looked at a species of ant that where the colonies move around, there's some nests out there. And um, you have these ants in Portugal, for example, uh, uh, oh, okay. ants, uh, harvester ants, and they, um, the colony will live in a nest for a while and then it will move and then another colony will move back into the nest where it was. And so these colonies are shifting around in different nests. And what um, we found was that the behavior of the colony is very much determined by the nest. So we think that the nest that has um, chambers that are shaped in such a way that the ants are more likely to meet each other will react more quickly because the ants come up against each other, something happens outside, um, instead of having maybe big chambers where they're more spread out and they don't meet each other as often, they're more likely to meet and they're more likely to act. And so it looks like the colonies have a different personality or differences in behavior, which in that case is dictated by the way that the nest uh, funnels them together and leads them to interact. So we see a lot of differences among colonies in how they behave. Um, and we see that those differences have different sources. And we um, just accept that selection is acting on this variation among colonies. Mm -hmm. So uh, can we talk about hierarchy? in ant colonies. Is there really a hierarchy or not? Um, in uh, some species of ants, um, we see that uh, there's some um, fighting among individuals and uh, among that has and the outcome is um, who reproduces. So if we say that reproducing is highest, then we could say there's a hierarchy in that the it ends up that some of them become queens and some of them don't. I think that that's um, taking a story uh, from human behavior and imposing it on them. I mean, it's giving more power to the ones that reproduce than the ones that don't. But it's not really clear to me that the ants experience that as power. Um, so hierarchy implies some kind of power. Mm -hmm. um, again, to go back to the example of a finger, you know, you could say that your heart has more power than your finger because you need your heart to survive and you could lose your finger and still survive. But I'm not sure that you would really say that's a hierarchy. Um, it's more um, a distribution of function or something like that. Um, but, uh, uh, and what about the caste system? Is this also some sort of anthropomorphism that people are applying here when they talk about potentially uh, caste systems existing in ant colonies or not? Well, absolutely. The, the idea of caste um, comes from human societies where uh, different people are assigned a, a social status 
um, that is thought to attach to them permanently. In um, ant colonies, most species that we know about, um, once an ant is a worker, it does not become reproductive. And once an ant is a reproductive, it does not become a worker. That's not completely fixed, but um, it's, it's fairly fixed. Um, so the word caste was originally um, applied to that, or I think people sometimes get confused between the idea of caste as distinguishing workers, the ones who, re who don't reproduce, and reproductives, the queens who do reproduce. That's one notion of caste, but it gets kind of blended in with this other notion that's sometimes called behavioral caste, which treats the ants that are uh, collecting food as a different caste from the ants that are uh, cleaning up the nest. And that really, um, they're the analogy to um, some kind of fixed human system really does not hold because the ants can change. Uh, whereas caste is meant to imply that it's permanent and can't be changed. So I don't think that it, it's a very good way to talk about the this um, distributed process of task allocation that we know is at work in an ant colony because it connotes a fixed system and that's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, can studying ant colonies help us understand better how other systems that work without uh, central control work or not? Well, the great thing about ant colonies and um, looking at their collective behavior is that they are so diverse, um, not just in numbers of species, but in ecology. So there are ants living in every conceivable habitat, and they're using every conceivable resource. They nest in the ground, they nest in the trees. Some of them grow their own fungus to eat. Uh, they eat seeds or insects or um, some of them have uh, bacteria that process food and, and create food for them. So there's this huge diversity in how they operate ecologically. So I think they give us examples of how collective behavior evolves in different kinds of ecological situations. And maybe there are analogies, I think there, there are interesting analogies between how uh, collective behavior operates, for example, in conditions where the resources are very limited and it takes a lot of energy to, to function and in habitats where um, activity is very easy um, and uh, or there's more competition. So we could see how different situations have led to the evolution of different kinds of collective behavior. And I think there are analogies there with how other systems operate in different ecological conditions. That doesn't mean that every system is exactly like ants, but that we can see that evolution can um, converge to generate collective behavior that's similar in similar ecological situations. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about uh, some terms that people try to extrapolate from human societies to ant colonies, some anthropomorphisms, perhaps. But what about the other way around? I mean, by studying ant colonies, is there something like, for example, distributed problem solving, distributed intelligence that we can extrapolate from 
and societies to human societies? Yes, but to do that, we have to zoom out so far that we're not taking into account our own identity and our own narrative about what we're doing and what's happening. Um, so it's extremely important to us to function as a sane person. You have to know who you are and you have to have some idea about what you're doing right now. If you lose that, you're, you're not functional. But ants operate without that. So there's no evidence that an ant cares, you know, about that it's ant number 622 and that you're ant number 750. It, we have no evidence that ants have any sort of attachment to some personal identity or that they really need a story about what they're doing. If you watch ants for any amount of time, you see a lot of ants just kind of bumbling around in an aimless way. Um, and they don't seem to feel that they have to justify what they're doing. So in our relationships with each other, we're not like ants because we have um, a complicated and really crucial, really important network of relations with other people. That's not what ants are doing. So in order to see analogies between the way that ants work and the way that human societies work, you have to think about very large human networks where individual identity doesn't matter, like the internet. The internet operates in a certain way through these particular interactions that we have set up between computers and routers and servers and people. And it doesn't really matter who you are when you type an email message, you're using this network that works in a certain way and it doesn't really care about the identity of the of the participants. The identity of the participants doesn't matter. And so I think that we do have a lot of um, large uh, networks that operate through distributed processes. Um, of course, some that we have made, so engineered networks like that, but also ways in which, um, again, people living in um, an environment where they're around a lot of people and they function collectively, for example, in a city, um, there's all kinds of ways that we function collectively without any um, connection to the identity of other people. The way we move on the street, the way we um, operate in the in the subway system, and uh, the way that we manage, um, uh, even on a smaller scale, uh, there's some beautiful work by Irving Goffman, a sociologist, about how people act in an elevator. So um, the first person goes in and stands in a certain place. When the second person comes in, um, the first person moves. When the third person comes in, the second person moves. So that's a kind of collective behavior that works through a distributed process where the identity of the other people doesn't matter. Um, you don't need to know the other people in the elevator to operate in this way. And so I think in our lives, we have a lot of um, interactions that are uh, detached from our personal identity that operate in a distributed way. So uh, we participate in a lot of collective behavior that way. Mm -hmm. Great. So, uh, Dr. Gordon, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the Internet? Uh, well, you can search for my name and look at my lab website. Um, 
I think maybe you can um, publish that or something. So if you search for uh, Deborah Gordon at Stanford and ads, you'll find me. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to that in the description box of this interview. And Dr. Gordon, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. You will find links to it in the description box of this interview. And also, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perorga Larson, Jerry Mueller, Ernst Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whitting, Bordarno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windager, Rui Nassio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavana, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreev, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, João Linhares, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hamel, Sardas France, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Dez Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Dana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stasebski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pans Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Martin Eichland, Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mal Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Kloaki, Georgius Theophanes, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Moray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herringbun, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson and Chris Story. A special thanks to my producers Isa Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Tom Vanegdam, Bernard Igni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumpel, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, June Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Alnick Ortiz, and to my executive producers Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriana and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.